Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Walker, front and center. This hour, we are on 5K Watch as stocks look to cross another major milestone. We do have the latest trades from the Investment Committee as they navigate the road ahead. Joining me here for the hour, everybody's at Post 9 today. Josh Brown, Jenny Harrington, Bill Baruch, Liz Young. Let's check the markets. Do have some red on the board. Uh, we'll really pay attention, though, to the S&P. 49.92.42. So we got some work to do. We got, Josh, you sat with me yesterday for the whole hour on Closing Bell. 49.99.89 yeah. is where we got. And we thought we were going to cross during that hour. We did not. So we backed up a little bit here. But we're on the doorstep. What are we thinking today? Yeah, uh, Jay Woods texted me yesterday. He said, if we don't do 5,000 and you're on the desk for an hour, we're going to start calling you the mush around here. So maybe we'll get it done today. Who knows? Here's what I would, here's what I would say. Today is a really important day, because, not because Disney is such a huge market weight, But I think it's a sign that it's not just giant technology companies running this playbook where they get serious about costs, they they get serious about profitability, and the race for user growth continues, but they try to do that at a rational pace with shareholders' money. This is just the latest in a string of stories that are completely un-AI related, yet very, very important as a signal to the market that the earnings pickup that we saw the early signs of over the last two quarters is something that can persist throughout the course of the year. Of course, there are some big uh, roadblocks to that if the economy turns down, but if it does not, we do have this earnings growth story intact, and that is what, what I think will justify the gains we've had thus far and hopefully future gains as the year progresses. Liz, UBS today says the rally's been well supported. Quote, we also see the potential for further gains in the event of a Goldilocks economic outcome in which U.S. growth is stronger than expected and tame inflation allows the Fed to cut rates aggressively. Wolf, who's been negative, consensus has shifted from soft landing to no meaningful slowdown. We continue to see upward pressure on stocks until there is more compelling evidence that the Fed won't cut in line with expectations and or the economy is meaningfully decelerating. In other words, stocks going up. Stocks are going up and there's little to bring them down until there's some sort of change in this belief that the Fed's going to cut rates, maybe not in March, but soon enough. Well, the interesting part is there's already been a change in belief that the Fed is going to cut rates sooner and the market quivered at best, right, and continues to rise. And here we are knocking on 5,000. The only part of some of that that I would take issue with is the idea of what they're calling Goldilocks in the sense of growth is better than expected, yet inflation somehow comes down enough that the Fed can cut rates aggressively. Well, isn't that the, the math whole... of that doesn't really work. Really? If I mean, growth that's is what the whole than expected, sort of thing's been been based on, right? The, uh, yes. That but is soft landing, right? 
some people's definition, sure. My point being, if growth is stronger than expected, that likely means demand is stronger than expected, which means inflation would actually get higher or reaccelerate, or at, at the very least, stay where it is and not fall and we justify a cut. We can't have productivity make up for the difference and have economic growth without inflation? We could as long as the productivity doesn't cost a lot more and need to get passed through from companies in that form, in which case you do have inflation anyway. So I don't think that that necessarily the Goldilocks scenario that they're outlining is what will come to pass. I do think that we'll need growth to cool off. But to the point of the market has been supported, things like industrials making new highs, that's good confirmation. Discretionary hanging in there, that's good confirmation. The part that isn't working quite yet, small caps not making new highs, obviously. Mm -hmm. The equal weighted S&P not really showing a ton of strength. Not going down, but not showing a ton of strength. And credit spreads, I think this is one of the most interesting parts. Even in the face of some of this new regional bank crisis, we'll call it, a, a mini one that we're going through right now, credit spreads haven't moved. So the market isn't really even reacting to that because it's a risk that we already knew existed. Well, we'll get some more inflation reads, and it's going to be proven out whether you can have an economy that continues to roll and inflation that continues to roll off. And that's where we're at. And the debate is, is thick. I get it. Um, whether one precludes the other from happening, Fed Chair Powell seems to suggest recently he doesn't necessarily think you you need at this point to crush demand so much to get inflation down because it's already been coming down. Bill Baruch, yep. on I, the doorstep of 5,000, okay, eight and a half points away. How do you see the market here? I, I agree with what you just said. With, with Powell saying does not have to crush demand. If you look at CPI, and I'm excited to see this report next week, do we continue to see goods inflation come down, rents continue to come down? Does that Because that's going to bring a tailwind. There's going to be parts of, of the economy that, that perk back up. But overall, I think inflation is coming down. And, and I, I think we're seeing 5,000 in the, in the S&P because and earnings have been broadly good. The leadership is well-defined. And there are, there are spots within the economy, like Liz, you mentioned industrials, that are performing pretty well. There's some healthcare stocks that we all know are performing pretty well. So there are parts that broaden broadened out a little bit. Now, I, I think really when it comes to the Fed and not talking about cutting rates and that which would be a tailwind is they cannot speak of this because of the, the market's reaction function. They are playing it back. And just like they said, they weren't going to hike, hike rates. And then they said they're going to do it slowly. And what did we get? We got four 75 basis point hikes in a row. So I, I think right now, as this all plays out, I think March is still on the table. I do expect them to go in May. And I expect the stock market to continue to move along. City. Jenny says the biggest macro risk in the market is any disappointment whatsoever mm -hmm. on the rate cut timetable um, or the magnitude of it is the single biggest macro risk for the equity market. That, that's what they suggest. I would tweak that to just end at any disappointment because I believe that we're priced to perfection. And when Josh said the gains support where we are so far, I agree with you. When Liz says we have a math problem, I agree with Liz. $247 earnings are what we are on track for now. 247 times 20 is 49.40. There's nothing out there that suggests that earnings should be any better on the S&P 500 than the 247 that we're headed for. So to me, we are right now in a best case scenario. Therefore, how are we in a best case scenario if the Fed hasn't even cut yet? Because, okay, we're in the best case scenario because we're trading at 20 times earnings because we're on track to 247. I don't know that 20 times is really justified, particularly if you're right and if the economy is strong and inflation is a little stickier, 
Generally, 20 times isn't deserved. So it's best case with respect to the multiple that we're trading at. It's best case that earnings are on track to get to 247. I completely disagree with the city case. I don't think that's the biggest risk to the the biggest risk to the rally is the magnitude of rate cuts. Like if macro risk, it's like if we get big disappointment, like if we get 150 basis points and not 175, that's a risk to the market. I totally don't see it. I I think the risk is we overheat and the Fed has to start hiking again. I'm sorry. I think that's a way bigger risk than the timing or the amount of cuts we get in 2024. I don't don't understand how anyone could not see that that's the risk. Well, the other risk. Oh, and one other thing. I'm sorry. Isn't it a tautology to say, like, uh, the risk is, is the rate cut? If things get bad enough because there's that much risk, they're going to cut the rate. So it, it's, almost, it's almost like irrelevant at this point. We don't do preemptive rate cuts uh, in, in, in this country. That's just not a thing that we do. There's always trouble, and then we, and then we cut rates. It's never like, oh, let's give them a few rate cuts. That's not what's going to happen here. If the unemployment number starts to spike in an uncomfortable way, then they'll start to cut rates. And if it doesn't, then what is the story we're telling ourselves for why a rate cut is like this emergency it's, thing it, that we have to do right now? It's only, it's only one of the perceived risks. The other is well-documented, well-discussed, well-debated, whether the market's too narrow, whether stocks are too expensive, right? Marco Kalanovic, JP Morgan says it's worse than 99 in, in mega cap, too complacent over risks that are in the market commercial real estate. I think New York Community Bank front and center. When I think about that stock still under five, we haven't heard from you regarding that. Are you still holding that stock? And if so, what's your thought process on this whole I am, story? But just differentiating one quick thing before I get into that on commercial real estate, I really, really don't want us to go there with painting a broad brush or using New York Community Bank Corp to paint that broad brush. Oh, you can In paint fact, whatever picture you want with New York no, Community no, Bank because no. it's, a, it's, a, it's not Josh a pretty picture. Let's just deal with that. Let's just deal Let's with, just deal with it. I want to know what you're doing with okay. New York Community Bank, please. So as you all know, you know, for better and worse, I never react on either buying or selling until I feel like I have enough information to to make a smart decision at that point in time. Sometimes it keeps me out of stock, sometimes it gets me out too soon and too early, whatever. So as soon as New York Community Bank Corp announced earnings last week and they cut the dividend, obviously I had to sell, but I did not need to sell then. So then I go into like, get the information I need mode and try to minimize the loss and figure out what's going on. I have spent the last week so deep in on this and trying to figure out what's the right information and information, what's the right, sorry, information that I need to make a smart decision. And it's leaked out, right? There's new management, there's a press release. I've had tons of conversations with industry experts. I've understood that there's been message borders, the same ones apparently who went after First Republic because they know that if they can take down their share price with banks, a falling share price can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. I've listened to other people in the industry go out there and make like really disparaging remarks about the earnings power of the company because they, you know what they do? They're asset buyers and they want to buy assets at, at fire sale prices. So I've tried to let that noise get out and tried to assess what's the right price for this stock and when should I sell it. So I'm obviously selling it, I have to sell it, but I am not selling it at the $4.20 that it's at right now. What leads you to believe that it won't be lower than where it is now? Because I think what we've seen, and this is where I was gathering the information, what we've seen is one of the really interesting comments on the call yesterday was he said, look, we're using the streets estimates of $840 million of earnings next year. Whether it's $700 million, $800 million, or $900 million, that's more than enough to run down the reserves that we need, right? We've got enough earnings power ahead. What we saw yesterday, which was super important, was that there is no run on banks, and that's what I was worrying about. So there's no deposit issue because Janet Yellen is backstopping that. And what we saw also was we saw the companies being active and bringing in 
more management who can speak better and help move this into a Category 5 bank with all those requirements. And so I think those are backstops here. What I'm trying to assess is what's the real tangible book value? You know, a week ago, it was thought to be 1060. I don't know if it's $9 or $8, but the stock has historically traded around tangible book, right, at or above tangible book, and I just don't want to sell it at 50% of that. So I don't know what the right number is. I know that I'll be out in relatively short order. How are you going to know when the right number, I mean, how are you going to know? Is there this, like think, an alarm going to go off? No, and it never does. You know, like but we have a joke at know. Gilman Hill, no one ever rings the bell. No, I know, but you're, it sounds like you're well, waiting for, you, you I'm waiting won't for sell the dust it for to settle. four. I won't sell it for 420, right? I'm waiting for the dust to settle. And at, for, at $6, I thought it was way overdone. I listened to the conference call. I don't know the company as well as you do. You listen to the first conference call or the second conference Both. call? That proved to be, it, that proved to be incorrect because one of the things that came out subsequently, which I think management now deserves no trust, is that ah. a regulator, uh, their regulator forced, forced right. them. Right. Uh, they also to quietly regulate. got rid of a chief risk officer by taking their name off the website. This is not the behavior no. of responsible but bankers. But then what you see is more responsible behaviors coming in, which is why Sandro Dinello came in yesterday and, and like really led the call yesterday. So if you listen to the call yesterday, I thought the tone was very different. I think they're stepping up and in to try to shore this up. I'm very, very curious to see who they bring in to replace the chief risk officer, because if it's someone from a really high quality big bank, that's a big statement. I'll probably be out before it gets there. But what I think is it's not as bad as it, as it looks. And there's so much noise from the algos that automatically had to sell on the dividend cut, from the message boarders who tried to create. The message boarders tried to create SVB 2.0. I think this is, this is not, and we heard Janet Yellen say it earlier on, the, on, the pro, on CNBC, this is not systemic. This is the case of a small bank that got over their skis when they bought those signature assets. They should have been accretive. And you know what they did that was the most strong? And this goes to your point of horrible communication. Yeah. The thing they did was they didn't bring in more management a year ago with very large Large bank Making experience. an argument, though, that I mean, isn't it worse? In fact, if it's not it, systemic, but if it's idiosyncratic to the stock you happen to own, yeah. And so I will sell it. I'm just not selling it here at this price because I think this is the wrong price right now. Okay. Um, the other argument we've had—not really an argument—some um, of the evidence we've seen from our committee members is trimming big winners in this market because things, to some, have gotten a little bit crazy in certain kinds of stocks. Steph's out of Meta, Josh clips NVIDIA by 20%. Joe trims CrowdStrike. Bill's been trimming NVIDIA and, and AMD over the last many weeks too. So I was like, all right, we're on the doorstep of 5,000 on the S&P. Let's go back to November 1st and look at some of the biggest winners for the committee since that period of time when you really had the last leg towards 5K, so to speak. And it's really unbelievable when you look at this list of names that have soared beyond the ones we talk about every day that you might know about. United Rentals, we don't talk about that every day. Does anybody talk about that really a lot? But a lot as to being one of the leaders of of the last leg to 5,000? I don't know. It's up 60% since November 1st. Yes, I know, Jenny, you own it. (laughs) Bill, you're adding to it, which is interesting. Why? Yeah, I added to it last week. It was actually a new position for us in January, so we didn't didn't catch all of this, and we added to it last week. Um, They had a terrific earnings report. They were up about 12 13% day of earnings. The the CEO uh, highlighted free cash flow and talked about it being the hallmark of the company to to be a revenue generator going forward. And the Free cash flow is so significant right now. I think that was a really good point by, made by them. And, and, I mean, a leader across the board. Look what Caterpillar's been doing, too. 
You know, the, the other one, um, you wanted to talk about Carlisle, Josh, which is up 61% since November 1st. It's a new 52-week high today. So again, underscoring the point, this is not an AI stock. It's not. I bought the stock almost at the top in 2021. It was probably one of my worst. Uh, I've had a I've had a bunch of uh, not so great situations from 2021 era, but this was probably one of my worst purchases. I stuck with it, though, because it is a company in transition. They got rid of a CEO. They, they embarked on this, this search for a new leader. Um, and I think they found the right guy. They found Harvey Schwartz. And based on what went on yesterday, massive double digit earnings reaction. I am happy to announce the Harvey Schwartz era in the private equity sector has begun. For those of you who are not familiar with the man, he lost the power struggle to David Solomon to take over Goldman Sachs uh, leadership. That didn't work out. I feel like this could almost be like a revenge posting. I'm super excited to see how well Carlisle can do. So um, it was a poor investment I originally made. It's been a couple of years. However, I think the company has the right person leading it. And I think private equity is poised to take advantage of this huge boom in popularity for alternatives. They're going to be right there in the mix. And they are the third largest of the publicly traded, I believe, uh, P.E. firms, which, from my perspective, gives them a lot more opportunity. Working higher as we speak there. Jenny, all this talk about, again, you know, commercial real estate, SL Green is up 51% since November 1st. Yeah, and and it goes to the Kimco comment that was on just before where they said, it's not all created equal and it's all about supply and demand. And so could anything sound worse, right, than office space? And SL Green, they just have really, really high quality buildings. They have A, a yeah. space. They have triple <laughs> they A have space. More, oh, I thought you meant A space, meaning one building. No, they own like like one okay. Vanderbilt. Giving them a grade. They own, they own good they stuff. They have A plus they, they space. They have A plus is that, is that prime real estate. And what you see in New York City where they're concentrated is there's 450 million square feet of, of space in New York. Over the next few years, 50 million square feet of office is supposed to come out. So that supply-demand equation is working for them. My point is like, you know, We've, we've heard from committee folks trim some AI-related huge winners. But what about, the, are, you, are you thinking about taking some profits in SL Green? No. Are you thinking about taking some profits in Carlisle? Are we thinking about, you know, no. United I sold the Empire State Building forget. yesterday. <laughs> I did. Okay. But don't forget, we actually trimmed United Rentals on that earnings call last week. We sold Palo Alto Networks, right? We've been, we've been trimming and selling at the really stretched ones. SL Green sounds great, but that's just its one-year return that you're looking at. It's it's not like it's up tremendously. We're kind of flat on what our initial purchase price was on it. So it's not a huge position in the portfolio. It's 3%. It's where it should be. You know, NVIDIA is up 71% since no November 1st. Um, and some of these chip stocks have just gone crazy. Um, you, sit, you know, we talked about AMD, right? It was up 80% in three months. You're like, I, I got to get out of this. This is just insane. Arm today is up 38%. Now it has a bigger market cap than Micron. You tried to buy it uh, this morning, Bill, got away from you. But Christina Partsinevelos is with us now to take a look at Chips Gone Wild because they have since November 1st. And there are a whole group of them that have years worth of gains. Yeah, very true, especially when you, let's start with ARM because that's the first one you mentioned. The takeaway from that result is AI demand actually translating into revenue dollars, so monetization. And we see that with the uptick in data center demand and improvements in royalties. That's why the stock is up, what, 58% just over the last two days or so. Um, this jump shows, and it's, by the way, it's not necessarily good for competitor Intel at the moment, but it shows us what investors really want, the next wave of AI winners beyond NVIDIA. NVIDIA, 
Investors still love it, they, but there's concern that there may not be enough upside post earnings on February 21st, especially with these supply constraints, which would limit revenues. That's why you had so many people trimming NVIDIA just over the last little while. Morgan Stanley highlighting the concern of supply, even though their price target's 750 bucks for NVIDIA. NVIDIA, the top holding in the Vanex Semi ETF, which, by the way, today hitting an intraday high. I want to pivot, though, to the other AI winners. Monolithic Power, a great example of another AI play. Shares are up uh, double digits, 16% today post-earnings. They help make the power circuits for data centers. Arista Networks, another name, up today. Earnings are out early next week. They help with connecting GPUs. And then you also have the recent cloud CapEx comments. I know, Josh, you spoke about this yesterday at 3 p.m. on Closing Bell. That's helping keep the momentum going. The world is actually set to spend $180 billion in AI CapEx in 2024, driven by the deep pockets of Microsoft, Meta, Alphabet. You can even throw an Amazon in there. So it's an arms race to create the quickest AI system. And why we've seen, to your point, Scott, the non-NVIDIA names like AMD, TSMC, big highlight there, really soaring just within the last month, 26%. You can see on your screen uh, since January 2nd, Marvell, another huge name, up 20%. So it's the search for names beyond NVIDIA right now. Yeah, which we've been, you know, trying to look for. Uh, Christina, thank you. Christina Partsinevelis, like Taiwan Semi, Bill, is a good example of, I mean, its market cap is almost $600 billion, I think. It's marched up the ladder of market cap over this this period of time. You own a lot of these names, yeah. right? You own Micron, who just gets passed, uh, as, as we said, by ARM. NVIDIA, we, we suggested, AMD, Synopsys. Yes. How do you view these? Synopsys is, uh, is our number four holding. Um, it, it's, I mean, they design electronic design automation for every relationship with every uh, name here, NVIDIA, down the line, uh, Intel. Um, I mean, really, just more about stock, prudent stock management, prudent portfolio management. I mean, you know, two weeks ago, trimming AMD and NVIDIA by one-third, um, dropping them to about nine and ten in the portfolio, raised quite a bit of cash, has been able to invest other places or keep on the sidelines. But NVIDIA's marched back up to number four just in the last two weeks. So it's just continuing to do that. And I've been doing that for over a year now, just, just continuing to manage these names. But I, I think whenever he focuses on the multiples that are just exploding higher, really, it's tech isn't about what are you doing for me today. It's about what are you doing for me three to five years down the road. I mean, in just 2026, multiples are, are more than are, are half of what these are trading at now, maybe a third of what they're trading at right now. So I, that gets me excited for the revenue that's being generated. The hyperscalers are monetizing AI and, and the picks and shovels are, are seeing that and they're going to continue to grow. Speaking of another stock that's marching today uh, higher, it is Disney. Josh mentioned it at the top of the show as being one of the day's biggest winners. It's an extraordinary move today. Uh, we mention it again because you own it, Jenny, and um, the stock had moved up into the print. Right. And job, now, now, it's, you, now it's surging more than 12%. It's, it's interesting because when I think about why it's moving today, it kind of goes back to why I was defending it in November and over the summer. And so over the summer, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that basically proclaimed the death of theme parks. No one wanted to go. Actually, it was because it was 113 degrees. In November, one of the things that I was like so going to the mat on was that it reminded us of our trade of holding on to Meta, you know, and, and that they had all these cost-cutting opportunities. And sure enough, you see that start to show up. And so you see just kind of like normalization come in. You see pandemic distortions wear off, normalization come in. And then if you look at it from a valuation perspective, okay, now it's at 23 times, but earnings growth is supposed to be 19 percent next year and 15 percent the year after that. And that matches up nicely. So for now, we're holding on to it. But I do not think that there's the upside in the next year that we've had in the last several months. You made this your final trade uh, a couple of days ago. 
yeah. suggesting I almost that you're looking at this thing. Now I wonder if you feel it's gotten now it's gotten away from you a little bit. I yeah. thought you would only pay seventy or something. I wanted to pay seventy. It got seventy-two. I think I never bought it. So what'd you pay? This is I didn't buy it. Nothing. That was your final trade, didn't but you didn't it. buy it. It's my final trade because that that was super profitable. I was like, hey everybody, look at Disney. It's breaking out. And then I. Bye. Bye. The cruise ship left the dock. Um, <laughs> I think the Epic Games thing is really excited, and like many parents of. Uh, teenage boys, I have inside knowledge that <laughs> Fortnite probably saved the United States of America during the pandemic. If not for Fortnite, you literally would have had 10 million teenage boys just rampaging through the towns they lived in uh, and causing all sorts of mayhem. It's how they communicated. It became their de facto uh, social social media platform of choice and not like a few times, but 24-7 for two years. What's important about that is Disney recognizes they have done virtually nothing in games, unless you count like Mickey, Mickey Mouse Haunted House um, on, uh, on Sega Genesis. So this is really going to be important. It's 237 million active Fortnite players. That is a huge population, and they're not active the way Meta says their users are active. They're like really active, like super engaged. So I like that they're yeah. going on offense and not everything they're announcing is cost cut, cost cut, cost cut. I like that they're doing new things and going into new places. All right, I got to take a break, but we come back. Uh, really interesting move to tell you about. Bill Baroop just bought a new stock. It's a name brand, that's to say the least. Uh, and it's an interesting one too. Josh is selling something as well. Tell you about it next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, we're trying to work our way back towards S&P 5,000, uh, at least to get there for the first time again. We're about five or, five or so points away. We do have these moves I mentioned, and Bill Baruch, I'm coming to you first because you bought 
Tesla. I did. You know, it, it is a starter position. It's not like I threw a slug in there, five percent for the position. I don't care. You and, bought but, it. But it, it is. I, need a disclaimer. I'm happy with it. I, and but what I'm saying for the viewers is, I'm not saying go here right now and YOLO Tesla. What I'm saying is, one of my strengths is position sizing, risk management, and, and that's what you want to do here. We started a starter position. I would like to build further into this. It, first, when a stock is falling out, you want to see it hit technical support and respond. It did that. Several big technical supports down there. Now, yes, they've slashed adjustment uh, adjusted EPS. They've slashed revenue guidance. They've, they've cut things down, but that's also brought the pessimism here. And I think the pessimism has already taken hold of this stock. What I'm looking at is the 2026, like I talked about in the last segment, they're slashing their, it's the, the, the multiple of it is going, 2026 is trading at 26 multiple. The optimist potential here is AI continues to develop. I, don't, I want to own this name when I wake up one day and Elon Musk is throwing a slug at it himself and bought more stock. And you think that will happen? I, I think it's around the corner. I think it's very soon around the corner that Elon would do that. I have no inside information on that. I'm just assuming that that he, you know, he he delivered a great earnings call in the sense of delivering the, the notes, but he had, didn't have a ton of enthusiasm out of it. What is you know what we may be looking to see this stock you come mean down? He deliv- a- I'm just going to come back to you. you. You say he delivered a great earnings call. Those were your Oops, direct. Sorry, not not great, but he delivered. Well, an I'm earnings- just saying because that that's your direct quote, but. Dan Ives, who covers the company and has been as bullish as anybody else, said it was exactly the opposite of what you're suggesting it was. And I agree with Dan Ives. I agree with you. Great was the wrong wrong name. I I would say from a fiduciary standpoint, he delivered the earnings call. That's what I'm highlighting. What do you mean? He was on the call? He was on the call, yes. And it wasn't. The bar is low. But the bar is low. He did not go out of his way to be enthusiastic about it. Maybe he wants to see the stock lower. And I would imagine that that he's been talking about owning a, a more voting share in there. I he think wants that, them to give it to him. Yeah, he wants. He's to not to talking him. about buying more stock. He's talking about give me more votes so I can control this and give me my fifty-five billion dollar payout. Why are we in court in Delaware? That's that's that, that that's what, on his agenda right now. That is a disappointment, and that aligns with the pessimism that's building here. So I think overall, though, I I do think at one point we'll wake up one morning and he's been buying stock. But as the pessimism takes hold, it doesn't change the overall story. It changes if you look out the multiple down the road in the next several years, it's going to be significantly lower. The market share and price cuts have changed the overall story for some, right? The, The loss of market share, particularly in China, the continued price cuts to, um, you know, continue to to, to build revenues. And there's a lot of doubt around EVs right now. A lot of doubt, but a lot of that's getting priced in. I mean, just from the numbers okay. being brought down, but also from the stock where the price is sh- trading go, right let's now. Let's go to this stock that Josh sold, uh, Empire State Realty Trust. You alluded to it a second ago, the Empire State Building. Yeah, so I bought this last year in the sevens back when uh, we thought nobody would ever go to work in, in a city ever again. And I guess that turned out not to be the case. The stock rallied, got up above 10, but I sold it right around where it is today. Uh, it's, this is just more of what I've been doing, taking off my lesser positions that I don't really care that much about. Um, I want to make room for if this thing gets overheated and has a, a, a real pullback market-wide that, that I can actually do something and, and maneuver. So uh, this has been a pretty good trade. It's worked out well. Uh, I don't, it's not a call on commercial real estate or anything like that. Um, but I think uh, a lot of what I thought would happen with the stock just happened really fast. So I took it. All right, let's get the headlines now with Bertha Coombs. Hey, Bertha. Hey, how are you, Scott? Ukrainian President Zelensky has removed his top general today after weeks of speculation over a possible shakeup in military leadership. He also posted a statement on social media thanking General Zalushny for 
defending the nation for two years. It's unclear whether the popular general resigned or was fired. Scientists in England announced today that they set a nuclear fusion record, bringing a limitless power source closer to reality. The team used a donut-shaped machine to sustain fusion energy for five seconds, using just 0.2 milligrams of fuel. While this could be a game changer to fight global warming, it's still many years away from commercial viability. A volcano in Iceland has erupted for the third time since December, sending jets of lava into the sky. The eruption caused an evacuation of a top tourist attraction and several communities lost heat and hot water. The Icelandic Meteorological Office said the eruption also left a nearly two-mile fissure by the volcano. Stunning pictures, though, Scott. Back to you. All right, Bertha, thanks. Bertha Coombs, straight ahead. Fundamentally broken. That is what billionaire investor David Einhorn calls this market, what he means and where he's pinning the blame. We'll discuss next. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. All right, welcome back. Billionaire hedge fund manager David Einhorn calling the markets, quote, fundamentally broken due to the growth of passive investing and algorithmic trading. I want to talk about this because he made these comments to your business partner, Barry Ridholtz, in the Masters of Business podcast. Yep. He basically... You have fewer and fewer people paying attention to individual stocks. There's passive investing, and it makes it difficult for bottoms-up value investors like him and, and others. What are your thoughts? I'm, a, I'm conflicted. I don't disagree with what David Einhorn says. I think maybe where I might disagree is the magnitude. And a lot of people were talking prior to 2022, uh, the narrative on all the passive investing and all, all the algorithmic trading is that the sum total led to this basket of bubble stocks or the fang stocks or just this situation where dollars are going into these vehicles and pushing up the same stocks and ignoring. But the problem with that story is we saw continued flows into passive in 22, yet Amazon got cut in half. Meta fell 70% from its high. Apple was down big. These are the biggest weights in these index funds. So. How could both of those two things be true simultaneously? So I do think that it's harder to identify value, uh, identify a catalyst, and then have the market back you up and take your stock higher. Look, I think, that's a, can, I think that's a principal part of his point. Yeah, but it can As be someone done. someone who has, you know, become a legendary investor for doing just that, yeah, what he's you said. He's a, di a difference maker. He's amazing. Here's one of the, big, here's one of the bigger issues. Sometimes your skills that lead you to a ton of success in one market environment 
don't necessarily translate into a new market environment. And that applies to everybody, and that's frustrating. And I think there's some element to that that's A, true, and B, all right, what are you going to do about it? Liz, you know, for example, by late 2019, passive vehicles such as index funds have accounted for more than half of publicly traded assets in U.S. equity funds. Mm -hmm. We make this argument that Mr. Einhorn puts forth. I understand the argument, and I think that in this particular environment, like Josh is suggesting, it isn't really working the way that it used to. It isn't really working the way that he probably has made his hay. I don't think it's never going to work again. The reality of where we are in the business cycle right now is that momentum has taken over. The market is trading on thematics, barely even really trading on macro at the current state. Trading on thematics, there's a lot of FOMO going on. ETFs do ignite the chase, the feeling of wanting to chase it for investors. And you start to feel like the risk is actually not owning some of those ETFs. And that's, I think, where we are right now. But where value investing comes back is after a drawdown. It's after a recession. That's how it worked in the last recession. Usually the stocks that lead out of that are value stocks. They are smaller cap value stocks. I think that would happen again. It's just that we haven't seen that environment in a very long time. You, I, I need to hear from you, oh, Jenny. Thank you. Of course. <laughs> thank you. Um, right? It's changed. Being, yeah. a, being a bottoms up value investor has changed over the last decade. Yeah, and I really thought that 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 part that he said, passive investors have no opinion about value, that was so spot on. Um, I think it's interesting because you agree with the factual correctness of what he's saying, but the, the, disagree in the magnitude. I disagree in the conclusion. And where I disagree in the conclusion is kind of the forlornness of, you know, we can't do this again. I've found that as an investor, the best opportunities I've ever had to make money are when something's broken. So when I hear him saying that the stock market's broken, I think to myself, you know what? As a thinking individual, I actually have an opportunity. And then the other thing he says, it's not impossible to be a, if not impossible, sorry, it's really hard, if not impossible, to be a bottoms-up investor. And I would add to that, unless you have the skill set, the intelligence, and the patience. It's more than that. You, have something, that, that. you have something really special yeah. that you should not discount, which is the loyalty of your clients. They love you. And I'm you make about them. Oh, no, 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 but that's not what David Einhorn is. Okay. He's not exclusively talking about returns. There is an element to investing where you need the capital to stay as you go through these periods that are inevitable, no matter what you do, of underperformance. Now, Buffett's a genius because he did an end run around the, the investor loyalty thing. His money that he's investing is literally insurance premiums. They get paid no matter how bad his performance is. Most invest, and you saw a lot of hedge funds set up reinsurance vehicles in the Caribbean to try to emulate that. Um, they couldn't get the same scale as, as Geico, obviously. But my point is, the loyalty of your clients, which is really meaningful to you, I know personally, hedge funds charging two and 20 don't get that same amount of loyalty because it's really expensive to sit through these periods of underperformance. That's part of, of what this story is. It's not just about returns, it's about keeping capital for the next run of outperformance, which sometimes you have to wait years for. It has nothing okay. to do with how smart you are, how much work you're willing to do. I totally disagree because I think that if we look back to the hedge fund, you're boom, not charging two and twenty. No, you're but not if we look back to the hedge fund boom or any like the active management boom, I think that the there You know what? It's how not we're like talking he's about? become less intelligent. No, he's the good one. He's the smart one. He's going to come out on top. But he's the good one. Okay. But he's. <laughs> but, it has but nothing to do. But, 
We with, don't know how many dummies are out there. There are so many You could mediocre, be really smart and underperform for 10 you years. You can, but there's but it's not there an IQ. Too many it's not managers. an IQ game. No, uh, to some degree, I think it is. But to, he, there were he, so many He dumb, went through a period. They all have high IQs. I'm not IQs. directing my, my comment at David. I'm directing uh, it at this industry that had too many money managers who were like, of mediocre discipline, of mediocre strength of character, who are willing to like go from one philosophy to another, who are willing to compromise their process. There were too many people out there managing money who weren't really that good, who just the market kept you know along. And I think what this market's done is fl- flush it out, you know. And and only the really good managers, the only the really good active managers, are surviving. And I think that's what we're seeing because 150 billion came out of long short hedge funds last year, according to the Financial Times. Okay. It's not about IQ. They're all brilliant. No, they're not all brilliant. Yes, they, they are. are. It not. doesn't translate into returns. Ah, okay. And so there's also you can look at active versus passive flows. And this is where I wish I were like encyclop no investopedia Brown. That's right. I call you who like knows the numbers right off his head. But if you look at the trillions of dollars that have come out of active and into passive, that's not bad, right? That's a rationalization of how many mediocre people. We're managing active money before. And I think now that it's, that it's diverse. You know why the S&P 500 is so hard to beat? Because the best stocks in the world become bigger and bigger weights, okay. and the worst stocks get kicked out. Literally, the committee throws them out at the end of the year. It's a really great momentum strategy. In a momentum environment, it's a tough strategy to fight against. It's tough to fight against. I'll give you that. All right. Up next, we're taking you live to Vegas for the 10 best bets ahead of the Super Bowl. Contessa Brewer is there for us live. Contessa? Well, you know what? We will say, Scott, that Las Vegas really is embracing its new moniker. No longer Sin City. Now it's Sports City. And what they know is the big-time sports have a big-time impact on the bottom line. We take a look at the other publicly traded companies looking for a bit of a Super Bowl boost. Halftime is back in two minutes. All right, welcome back. Take a look at shares of wind today. Nicely higher after posting a record quarter. But if you don't want to roll the dice on casino stocks, we do have 10 best bets you can make ahead of Super Bowl Sunday. Contessa Brewers live in Las Vegas for us. This has nothing to do with going to the window at the sports book, right? <laughs> well, it might a little bit. Because, I mean, look, the casinos are an obvious choice. We heard from Wynn CEO on the earnings call last night that he expects a blockbuster February, in part because of Super Bowl. MGM CEO told me room rates are roughly double any other Super Bowl, which is always sold out. We wanted to look at uh, some other publicly traded companies and their tie-ins to the big game. Allegiant, the airline has naming rights to the stadium hosting the biggest single sports competition in the world for the very first time in Las Vegas. Nike, official apparel for the NFL, pays off when Chiefs tight end and Taylor's boyfriend, Travis Kelsey, lands in Vegas dressed in head-to-toe Nike. That's a lot of swooshes. Apple, the tech giant, is sponsoring the halftime show with Usher, though what the fans really want is a surprise Taylor Swift appearance. Paramount, the owner of CBS, which will broadcast the game this year, and it's pushing the production envelope, adding drones and the doink camera on the goalposts. Madison Square Garden, the owner of The Sphere, which takes on a starring role during the Super Bowl broadcast, displaying special NFL content live in response to the action on the field. Peloton, the 49ers giving each player and coach a Peloton bike and shoes. 
Toyota. The car company returns to advertising in this year's big game, and it just named Brock Purdy the Niners QB its new pitchman. Flutter, FanDuel's parent, trotted out its pitchman, Rob Gronkowski, when it listed on the NYSE. Now he trots out to try the kick of destiny live again. Gronk missed last year. Genius Sports, the exclusive data provider of the NFL, is responsible for feeding stats real-time to the sports books, fueling in-game betting. Verizon, the wireless provider, says it's tripled its capacity in Las Vegas over the last three years, especially in congested areas like the Strip and Allegiant Stadium. And hey, what about Snapchat and Meta? Because with all that 5G access to social media, Whatever happens in Vegas, well, you know, Scott, you know how that goes. Yeah, allegedly. All right. Contessa, thanks. Busy, I know, but enjoy yourself. <laughs> enjoy yourself. Contessa Brewer okay. out in Las Vegas for us. Your Midday Word with Mike Santoli is next. We're back with a news alert from Capitol Hill. Emily Wilkins has that for us. Emily? Hey, Scott. Well, after months of negotiations over Ukraine and Israel funding, uh, that package has now cleared a key procedural hurdle in the Senate. Uh, we have 65 senators at this point who are backing, moving that package forward. And that is really the magic number that we needed. We needed to see more than 60. You've got Republicans and Democrats on board here for this package of, again, $95 billion in funding for Ukraine and for Israel, as well as Taiwan and other countries in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, it's not finalized yet. There are still going to be a number of other procedures procedural votes, as well as a votes on amendment. We're expecting to see some on humanitarian aid, potentially border security. But at this point, there is the support to get this to the finish line, at least in the Senate. Then, of course, the next challenge is the House, where, again, you have bipartisan support for getting Ukraine aid done. It's just a question of the strategy of how you do it. Magic words, at least in the Senate. So we'll see how this all develops. Emily, thank you so much. Emily Wilkins down on Capitol Hill for us. Mike Santoli, our senior markets commentator, is with us now with his midday word. All right, so it's going to take a little bit of effort to get to 5K. 49.99.89 apparently wasn't good enough. No, not yet. I mean, not too surprising to see a little bit of hesitation. Uh, what is interesting, though, is it's allowing maybe the market cap weighted index to cool off a little bit. You have the rest of the market firmer. Um, whatever you believe about whether there's been too narrow a rally, what's definitely true is the majority of stocks have been consolidating and pulling back after that fourth quarter rally. Uh, and so while the S&P looks like it's getting a little stretch. If we get a little above 5,000, it's going to seem like, you know, maybe it's time to take a breather. Um, you know, the rest of the market has kind of got a head start on that process. Yeah, cool off today in some respects for many of the mega caps, though. As I just checked yeah. my screen, you know, NVIDIA is 702. It's uh, just green again, which says so much. No, I mean, look, they open the market and, uh, you know, the, the video game begins. And that's how it goes when it comes to those stocks. We'll see. We'll run out of that pretty soon. I saw some work to say its relationship to its own very long-term trend is not quite at the max of the last few years, but it's getting there. You want to you comment on, on what Mike's saying? I mean, I, is there anything left to say about NVIDIA at this point? I think... Uh, I think the stock has done way more than any of us thought that it could have done in the last, let's say, 35 days since the year started. And even if you're long and even if you're bullish, and I am, it's really hard to justify why there would be another leg higher. They might have outstanding earnings at the end of this month and not get uh, a rally the way that they have over the last few big earnings reports. And you might have to just be okay with that. I mean, this is a stock that literally is outperforming 
elements on the periodic table at this point. Like, Mike, I don't even know what to say. Mike, you know, <laughs> you made the point, too, that, you know, basically the S&P was, you know, round trip to nowhere in two years. Yeah. Um, but 5,000, the significance of it would be anything more than a nice fat round number to, to talk about and throw up a nice beautiful banner on the screen? I don't know if there's really inherent uh, significance to it, although what comes to mind for me is it's a double the level of two very important bottoms of the last several years. The low in late 2018, as well as the COVID low, we spent almost no time below 2,500. Minor overshoots, couple days, maybe a couple of weeks. But 2,500 round numbers was where we bottomed. So a double off of those numbers uh, in, in essentially less than four years in the most recent instance, it's significant, even though, hey, bull markets carry on better than that for hey, a while. Hey, Mike, in 10, in 10 years, people are going to be doing content on Twitter, and they're going to say, look how much stocks like rate hikes. Because you're going to yeah, look yeah, at this, exactly. this last 12 yeah, we scrambled month period, the whole. Say, we scrambled I, the whole historical yeah, narrative. I can't yeah. wait for the Fed to raise rates so we can get another <laughs> 2023. Right. Yeah. Mike, I'll see you on Closing Bell. Okay. Thanks, as always, for your insights. Mike Zintoli, finals are next. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. All right, 3 o'clock Eastern, closing bell. Wharton's Jeremy Siegel is going to join me once again. We'll see where this market is at that particular time. Take you right up to the close with Dr. Siegel. Steph Link, Joe T. also joining me today, so I look forward to that very much. Let's do final trades. Liz Young, what you got? Dividend aristocrats. This is an ETF that tracks an index. Look, if you're going to pay a high dollar amount right now, pay for quality. These are stocks that have paid a dividend for 25 consecutive years. And it's not all defensive. Industrials is actually the second biggest sector. You should have seen Jenny's face when you mentioned that. I saw her. I knew she'd like that one. She was like, (laughs) she felt seen. I know. What's your final, Jenny? Only next. Columbia Bank shares 7.8% yield dragged down unfairly because of our little friend at New York Community Bank. <laughs> Tesla, I'm doubling down on my call here, but okay. position size with patience. There's going to be volatility. Uh, Uber. All right. That's, he's been on a run. All right. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. I'll see you on Closing Bell. The exchanges now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.